And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, we are going to focus on the life and legacy of George Carlin, considered by many to be the greatest comedian of all time. He's also a passionate freedom advocate. I thought this man was so far ahead of his time, and a lot of the thoughts and insights he had were second to none. We are going to feature interviews with his daughter, people that knew him, and we're also going to do a forensic soul analysis on Mr. Carlin. Let us begin tonight's show. Boy, everyone in this country is always running around yammering about their fucking rights. I have a right. You have no right. We have a right. They don't have a right. Folks, I hate to spoil your fun, but... There's no such thing as rights, okay? They're imaginary. We made them up, like the boogeyman. <laughs> the three little pigs, Pinocchio, Mother Goose, shit like that. Rights are an idea. They're just imaginary. They're a cute idea, cute. But that's all cute and fictional. But if you think you do have rights, let me ask you this. Where do they come from? People say, well, they come from God. They're God-given rights. Oh, fuck, here we go again. Here we go again. The God excuse, the last refuge of a man with no answers and no argument, it came from God. Anything we can't describe must have come from God. And rights aren't rights if someone can take them away. They're privileges. That's all we've ever had in this country is a bill of temporary privileges. And if you read the news even badly, you know that every year the list gets shorter and shorter and shorter. You see how soon it is? Yeah. Sooner or later, the people in this country are going to realize the government does not give a fuck about them. Government doesn't care about you or your children or your rights or your welfare or your safety. It simply doesn't give a fuck about you. It's interested in its own power. That's the only thing, keeping it and expanding it wherever possible. Personally, when it comes to rights, I think one of two things is true. I think either we have unlimited rights or we have no rights at all. Joining us now is Miss Kelly Carlin, author of the book, A Carlin Home Companion. Miss Carlin is also an uh, author and a performer. You can learn more about her by going to her website at kellycarlin.com. Miss Carlin, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I want to just let our listeners know that the Carlin Home Companion book, I thought it was a beautifully well-written book. I mean, it's going to make you laugh at times. It's going to make you very emotional at times. It's very touching it really talked about your life and talked about what it was like to grow up with George and be his daughter and how at some point in the very beginning of the book, it became very clear that your mother and your father were very unique. And also you seemed to step up. You had to be the parent. What was that like being the parent and stepping into a parental role at such a young age? Well, um, it's, it's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you don't know it in the moment, but I had a lot of anxiety issues and things like that. And, you know, when your parents aren't acting like the grown-ups and holding a safe space, 
you know, where you can feel like, you know, you get to be a kid, it it can be really confusing and can be very stressful. Um, so it, it, it was stressful at times. And um, other times, you know, when they were acting more like adults and parents, um, it was certainly less stressful. But, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of a reversal of the way it's supposed to be. And uh, so, like I share in the book, you know, it kind of ends up setting me up for some different things as I get older because I've, you know, kind of got a lot of anxiety and depression and things like that. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, and being an only child too, I mean, it's, but see, the thing is like, none of this is, conscious you don't know any of it's going on you don't know it's supposed to be different um although certainly watching tv and seeing families on tv which are i guess average or normal but really aren't their tv families <laughs> you, but you always i mean i think everyone looks at families on tvs and go well my family's not like that and my family certainly wasn't like that you know so um but yeah i mean as i share in the book you know there's great times that i have with my parents and moments of great fun and laughter and joy and then there were some really harrowing times too well yeah i love the reference you kept on talking that you guys were the three musketeers and that you had some very positive times you also had times where things were a little uh, crazy i'm just curious to know that because you've had a very unique upbringing and because that you were your parents parent at some point in times i would imagine that because of um, who your father was that you were also learning some things that your that other kids weren't learning when you describe the positive aspects about your childhood, what would you say would be some of the things that you learned that the average kid in the average American family wasn't learning? What responsibilities that maybe gave you an edge in, later in life that you didn't that most kids maybe wouldn't have? Um, well, I think anyone who comes from a difficult childhood gets a lot of resilience from it because we learn that we can survive just about anything. Um, but unique to my family. Um, you know, there was a sense of being outsiders and not part of the culture. And so in some ways that served me, in some ways it didn't. Uh, you know, it, it, the way it didn't serve me was that I always felt like I wasn't enough to be part of the culture and needed to seek approval from from more mainstream places like school and institutions and things like that. Um, but it it's also given me a great point of view of, of how to think like an outsider and how to how to look, you know, and kind of witness it all from a from a different perspective, a, big, a bigger perspective. Um, I, I think that's been the greatest gift. One of the greatest gifts my father gave me was being able to have that kind of witnessing perspective that he had so well because he felt like such an outsider. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I think also I learned to be a diplomat and which – in some ways, once again, served me well, but I think ultimately doesn't serve me well because in, you know, trying to find my unique voice and and having a deep, deep urge to want to express myself artistically, um, it's been more difficult for me because I've always felt like, oh, I've got to take care of other people's feelings and I've got to make sure everyone's getting along, um, which is quite the opposite of what most artists do which is like here's what i'm thinking here's what i'm feeling here's how i see it and you know let the chips fall where they may um so you know that's kind of one that i've had to unlearn but i am you know very i could be i could be like an international political diplomat i'm guessing because i'm really <laughs> good at it you know i can read a room 
you know, I'm very intuitive and can read a room, can read exactly like who needs what and what's going on and what's the internal life of everybody, which, you know, is, is a great thing actually and um, makes me very uh, empathic and compassionate for the world. Do we- when you say empathic, I mean, at some point in the book, you were talking about your spirituality. What do you find have been some of your greatest spiritual insights, and what have been some of your most profound spiritual experiences in the course of your life? Well, um, you know, we, we all kind of have these you know different t- things in different parts of our life. Um, I'd always been a seeker. Both my parents were very much seekers and, um, you know, looking for meaning, looking for the truth, a lot of curiosity around all of that. And both of them tried a lot of different paths. And um, But, you know, I think my most profound spiritual awakening happened around my mother's death. And um, just from the fact of being in the field of her death and and kind of feeling like, living somewhere between the living and the dying. You know, I was very connected to my mother, and there's this kind of space I talk about. It's like the liminal space that's opened up when you're surrounded by death or near death, and and you feel like you're getting a glimpse of something way bigger than what it means to just be a conscious human. And um, so that was like my first glimpse of that and a really profound shift, and really what I got from that, first of all, was that everything is love, just pure love. And also that, you know, while I'm here on this planet, um, you know, life is short and death does come to us all. So we need to, you know, get our stuff together and and get working and, and, and do what we're here, what we feel like we're here to do. And that was the gift of my mom's death for me. And since your mother and father have passed, have you felt communication with them? Have they been giving you signs that they are around you, that they are working with you? You know, that's a tricky one um, because the rational part of my mind doesn't believe in any of that, doesn't think it's possible, um, doesn't think it's real. Um, But the, you know, the kind of the depth psychology imaginative part of me that um, and, and the empath part of me um, absolutely has a relationship with them. Um, my mother came to me after two, a couple of days after she died in the shower and put her arms around me. I still can't explain that. Um, and my dad um, came to me uh, the day or two days after he died and kind of gave me this vision of um, being in the wings of a theater and looking out at the stage, an empty stage with a single spotlight and a single microphone out there. And my dad's voice came into my head very loudly and said, um, it's all lined up for you, kiddo. Go for it. And um, so I don't know where that comes from. I don't know how that works, but um, I feel their presence and I can hear their voices in my head. Um don't know if that's an aspect of my own unconscious personality or or if it is them or not. Um, you know, my dad and I, the the little bit we did talk about death and things like that. I think one of the things we agreed on was that you just don't know until you until you die. You know, it's like that that big question no. is just not <laughs> answered until you die. And you know, and I think he at times in his life he wanted to believe in an afterlife and all of that, but um, I don't think as he got closer, I don't think he really, as a rational, like a really, you know, he's a very rational thinker, I don't think he could accept it either, so who knows? 
absolutely who knows, but um, I entertain it all, and I don't take any of it as gospel because we don't know, and I, I like being in the mystery of it all. And speaking about your father, I mean, your book, you talked a lot of experiences about your relationship over the course of many years, over the course of your entire life, and the one day you said it was one of the proudest days of your life when your father had stood up to one of your ex-boyfriends for abusing you. I want to know if you can please explain why that moment was so significant and how that uh, impacted and changed your relationship. It was um, referring to the, the yeah, person, Terry. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a, it's a dramatic moment in the book, and I say, you know, my father finally fathered me. I mean, clearly he had fathered me at times before that, but but he had taken, you know, that was a moment where he took an active, protective role with me, and um, and because I'd kind of been left to my own devices as a teenager, and 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 really made a mess of it. Um, and and I really did need guidance during those years, and neither one of my parents were willing to do that for their own reasons. My dad, because he didn't believe in it, and my mother, because she was afraid that if she gave me too much guidance, I would rebel. Um, but I was kind of in the middle of a, a meltdown rebellion anyway. Um, and so for me, it was just this moment where I really knew my parents finally knew the truth about my life. I'd been in an abusive relationship with a young man, and um and because I'd been keeping a secret about all of it for about 2 years and so it was just a profound moment where I didn't have to be living in secret you know having a secret life anymore and my parents knew what was going on and and they could back me and I really saw that they really did back me and believe in me and you know and I I think my fear was that I'd get in trouble if I told them the truth so but it, instead I I was protected and um so I think that was profound, and I, I really don't know how it changed my relationship with my dad. Um, I, I don't I don't have any memory of it being a significant shift of any kind. Um, just that, um, you know, he was he was a dad who was willing to literally go to bat for his daughter. <laughs> well, I want to just express to you, you know, we're on the air right now that um, I. So much love and admiration and respect for your father. And your father one time met my sister in the middle of New York City. It was pouring rain, and he stopped everything. My sister recognized him, and he got a picture with her. And I thought it was so nice. And I hear countless stories of your father doing just being this real nice and genuine guy. And wanted to know, have you ever stepped away um, from your you know, father-daughter relationship and heard your father's comedy and been able to listen to it from a person um, not uh, of his, as his daughter – but as somebody who's just a casual listener and being able to feel the impact that his comedy had and why it had such an impact on millions of other people, have you ever listened to it that particular way? Um, I, I don't know if I've like made a conscious effort to do that. Um, I think the the I think I start. I mean, I, I understood the profound impact he had on people before he died because I would have encounters with him when he wasn't around that the culture, you know, the culture would uh, spit out something about him or, or, or a professor would, you know, a, you know, say something about him, that, not knowing that I'm in the class or who I am or anything, or, you know, just kind of hearing that kind of a thing, like, you know, or, or finding a, something he'd written in a textbook or something like that. You know, it's, 
it's like you just kind of get like, oh, this guy's really kind of filtered mm-hmm. through the culture, and he's really changed the conversation about certain things, and, and mostly it's around language, uh, his, his biggest impact. Um, and, and you know, but I, I have to tell you that, you know, when I would go to HBO shows, when he would tape his HBO shows, I would have not have heard the material before hand, just like everyone else who was sitting in that audience. And um, so it was always a profound impact on me just as an audience member, as a person who's a thinking human in our country when he would come up with things. And of course, I would have a great sense of personal pride, like, oh my God, that's my dad up there. <laughs> but um, but I would also be just like other people in the audience, gobsmacked by his <laughs> intelligence and logic and ability to Put it to bring us to a conclusion about something that you know we'd never thought of before. So I was always you know profoundly hit by that, and um, you know, but that certainly happened in my forty, in my thirties and forties. You know, more when I was a more formed adult. And then since his death, I've had I'd say thousands of encounters with fans and people who have let me know the personal impact his work has had on their life. Um, not just intellectually, but on, on a developmental level for them, and um, and that's been that's been a very interesting and, and profound experience to witness. Um, and 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 it, you know, it's funny. I was just I was I tweeted earlier today. Um, I've been really kind of struck and hit by this death of David Bowie, who was for me someone like my father was to other people, and. Um, I tweeted about that, that I said, you know, I I kind of understand now how people felt about my dad when he died because people had said to me I'd never cried when a celebrity died before, but I cried when your dad died. And I've been an emotional wreck all day today about Bowie and, um, you know, what he symbolizes and the part he played in my own teenage years and my own shaping of myself and the comfort that I had from his work. Um, so yeah, it's it's I get it. Like I get, I get the impact. I mean, it's these are important people in our lives. Your father, you listen to his comedy. I think a lot of people they love your father's work because they know it made him laugh. But if you 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 go beyond it, you see that he was very articulate with his words. There was a lot of critical thinking, and I think that if you really go even deeper, you I mean, if you if people could call him a conspiracy theorist in one way because he used to talk about. The elites running the country. He would say that a small group of people run everything, and people kind of laugh it off. But I think he seemed like he really believed it. And I'm curious to know how did your father react to certain key events in the course of American history? Like, did he ever question the events of September 11th? Did he ever question other key events that are that are current in the history and questioned uh, behind it? Because one of his key quotes is, "I never question. I never trust anything the government tells me." Um, it's a great. Um, clip out there about my dad talking about conspiracy theories on Bill Maher's show. I don't know if it's real time or the politically incorrect show, but um, I really like his take on it, uh, which is you don't have to believe in conspiracy theories, um, actually, because, um, you know, whatever you want to believe about it, it, it's not it's not as shadowy and secret as you think. I mean, the system is rigged. The system's been rigged from day one. The elites have always run everything. So why would we think it's any different? Um, and I certainly can't speak for him. 
Um, I've seen some other clips out there of people getting him to talk about 9-11 and the truthers and things like that. You know, I really don't know what he believed about that stuff. Um, my dad was a really smart man, and yes, he believed that people were capable of all sorts of nefarious things and um, were greedy for power and control. And, you know, you read about anything that these people do to get out of responsibility for the common good, um, you know, it'd make you think anything about conspiracy theories. Um, do I think he thinks it's an inside job, 9-11 and things like that? I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I, you know, like he said, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this far-fetched, crazy conspiracy to believe that, you know, the world has kind of set itself up in a crazy way. Um, you know, I mean, my argument against the 9-11 truther insider thing is that, and all those kind of things, which I think my dad and I would agree on, is that, you know, the government's pretty fucking incompetent in a lot of ways. And yep. um, so, you know, in order for them to really be able to hold together some sort of tight-knit secret, 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 secret thing, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think I think in the age of WikiLeaks, I think some of that shit would have come out by now. So I don't know. But so yeah, I uh, you know, my dad also smelled bullshit from a million miles away, and I think a lot of conspiracy so he's quick to know about it. And I think and a lot of conspiracy stuff is full of bullshit. And I think it's a bunch of paranoid people wishing they had more control over their lives and realize that you know life is chaotic and life is full of entropy. And yeah, people in power do fucked up things, and they all know each other. But that's the way it's been for you know ever since there was a king. Well, this is a question that's actually for actually that for both you and your father. I mean, it just falls in the same thing. Um, your father, what was your his intentions behind his comedy? Did he have some kind of greater purpose behind the comedy he was doing? Did he see himself as a liberator of minds? And with the work that you are doing. The the, you know, the great work you're putting out between this book and your performance, do you see yourself as a liberator in some way of, of kind of waking people up and trying to show them a certain way of life? So I'm kind of curious to see if you and your father share that in common, and if so, um, what, what's the reason behind it? Uh, my dad vehemently denied being a, a, a mind changer. He saw himself as a comedian, and his job was to make people laugh. Uh, you can watch numerous interviews where he says those very words. <laughs> Um, the fact that his comedy and his thinking did change minds um, was, you know, I think uh, made him feel good. I mean, I think it, I, I mean, it makes you feel good when you know you're having an impact. Um, but he was, you know, he really backed away from that big time. And I think, I think he backed away from it because that made him freer to do what he wanted to do. Um, as for me, you know, I don't know. I'm in a transition right now. I've, I just have spent the last 15 years of my life or so, or maybe a little more, um, absolutely wanting to liberate minds, wanting to transform the world, wanting to help with the evolution of human consciousness. Um, but, you know, I don't know if it's possible. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if it's our job. Um, we All we can do is do the work we do and hope that it has... Uh, you know, can be a drop in, in the big ocean of, of all things. Um, you know, there's been a lot of evolution of things, and it's it's great, and in, in, included in humanity. But there's also the reality that we are a bunch of, you know, greedy, scared, power-hungry creatures also. 
uh, we're hardwired for it. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I try to hold the tension of those two things. I try to be uh, a real idealist and hold up the potential, the, the full potential of this consciousness. And on the other hand, um, hold on to uh, being a realist which is we are who we are. In some ways, we're biologically hardwired for certain things. And, um, you know, the way, as the, we were just talking, the way the system is set up, um, certain things feed into other things. You know, power begets power. And um, so it's, it's, it's a tough road. But, you know, you look at the last 100 or 200 years and you see the, pro- the progress of human rights and um, it, autonomous thinking and, you know, the rights of man and things like that. And there is some sort of slight bend towards justice, you know, um, but it's slow and it's slight. And, uh, you know, my fear is that the species won't last long enough to find real fruition in all of that. Are there any individuals you feel today that carry on the spirit of your father his passion for comedy, his passion for uh, the art of comedy, the the art of language, and the art of really um, making people think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there doing that in their own way. I mean, you know, I think all the great stand-up comics right now, I mean, you know, Louis Black and and Louis C.K., and my dad always really respected Chris Rock and, and his respect of the art form of monology. Um, you know, Bill Maher's doing it in his own way. Um, John Stewart, certainly. Stephen Colbert and the people at The Daily Show. And, um, you know, and then there's comics like Doug Stanhope who really love to skirt the edge and really push people's thinking and, and biases and beliefs, which I think really represents my dad in, in, in a great way. And, um, you know, there's a lot of noise out there in our culture and there's a lot of trolling and there's a lot of ignorance. Um, and it's only getting worse with this presidential campaign. But there are a lot of thoughtful people out there. And, um, you know, besides the people who are in the media and who are celebrities, you know, there are people out there to to absolutely go and, you know, get some insight from. And, and you know, there's some deep thinkers out there. But, uh, yeah, you know, th- there'll never be anyone just like, particularly like my dad. He He kind of held a big basket of things and, did it well, you know, he did observational humor brilliantly, and yet you look at Jerry Seinfeld and he does it brilliantly, you know. Um, He did, you know, he loved language and words, and I think there are some comics who still love that stuff and and do that work. Um, And, you know, but he also told a great fart joke, so... You know, he did. He did. The, he, test, he, fart, the test fart joke. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Or the walking segmented <laughs> fart. I mean, you know, come on. So, you know, for one person to hold that whole thing is really very cool. And, you know, I, uh, the current the current greats out there all stand on his shoulders, you know, if they weren't directly influenced by him or they he wasn't their particular hero. But, you know, he knocked down a lot of walls for them. And, uh so, you know, he's he is one of those one of a kind, absolutely. Miss Kelly Carlin, author and writer, I want to tell you what a great honor it was to speak with you today. You can learn more about Miss Kelly Carlin by going to her website at kellycarlin.com. You can also buy her book, A Kelly, a, a Carlin Home Companion on her site and on Amazon. I've read this book. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to love it. You should give it to anyone. It's a great gift. Ms. Carlin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.
But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks. And it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? It's a big club, and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. Joining us now is Mr. Jim Mandrinos, comedian. Yay writer and he's creator of the new show living in exile on tibi network you can learn more about mr mandrinos by going to his website at jim-mandrinos.com mr mandrinos oh, sorry i'm just gonna say that you can also get there by going to worldsbestcomic.com worldsbestcomic.com mr mandrinos as a person who's worked in comedy for over 30 years what is your perspective about george carlin and what was his impact, not only on comedy, but to society in general? Um, well, it, it's he changed the game. And, you know, there's a lot of arguments back and forth, whether it was Carlin who changed the game or Pryor who changed the game. But Carlin had a lot more mainstream appeal for a lot longer than Pryor did. There, there's no arguing that Pryor was a more talented performer. But with Carlin, what he had, which was, unique was the ability to evolve his perspective. If you listen to some of the stuff he did on AMFM, for example, and then you listen to some of the stuff he did on the later albums, such as A Place Where My Stuff or even a concert from Carnegie Hall, you get a comic who evolved and grew over time, as opposed to the old-time comics like Bob Hope and those guys who stayed the same for a 60 or 80 year span. You could watch George Carlin from, you know, from 72 to 2002 and get the evolution of a lifetime and the opinions that change with perspective. And that was something that was unique and nobody else in comedy had ever done before. And from your perspective, where did you see some of these greatest changes and growths in his act and what he was saying? Well, if you look at some of the stuff that he did on AMFM, you know, the seven words you can't say on television, um, you know, baseball versus football from the earlier albums, you know, you get a perspective of some of somebody who's intelligent, but is very much involved with wordplay. And then when you get to the later, the later times, when he's talking about having a prison system where we just take one of those square states 
from the, the Pacific Northwest and just put a fence around one of those square states and put everybody there. You know, now we're getting those same types of word plays with, you know, opinions, with, you know, opinions on society and perspective of somebody who's been through time. Um, if you listen to a lot of the early stuff, it was, you know, and not surprising at the time, unbelievably liberal. When you listen to some of the later stuff, some of that stuff is, is surprisingly conservative. And it's not conservative in a left-right political way like we see right now. It's conservative in, yeah, he sees that there's crime. Yeah, he sees how, you know, uh, his whole bit on changing shell-shocked, you know, and, and, and you know, doing a politically correct term for shell-shocked to post-traumatic stress syndrome weakened our ability to take care of the soldiers because it sounded too nice. So he under, even understood the impact, you know, of, of things like political correctness. And it was nice to see somebody who was well-rounded, who had liberal views, who had conservative views, who had popular views, who had unpopular views, and was willing to bring all of that to a stand-up. When you listen to Carlin's act, some of the things that he talks about, even in his earlier acts, the fact that he's offering up so many different questions or he's challenging the social norm – if you were to say those outside the stage, sometimes people will label you a conspiracy theorist. I'm curious to know as to why Carlin, how he was able to present these, get mainstream acceptance for it, and yet never get the label of being a, a conspiracy theorist. Well, and that's that's the genius of Carlin. Probably more so than a lot of the modern political comedians, or even some of the political comedians of his day, like Dick Gregory. He understood that you still had to entertain. He understood that funny still is the reason why they're coming to the concert. And you can spoon feed them your opinions. You can, you can educate them, but you also have to make them laugh. And while Carlin was unbelievable, you know, at, at getting us to, to, uh, to hear political viewpoints that were downright offensive. I mean, if you look at the joke that opened this Carnegie Hall concert on, Abortion. I don't know whether or not you can curse on radio, but yep, tell absolutely can. Yeah, absolutely can. Um, which is, um, you ever notice that the women who are against abortion are the ones who wouldn't want to fuck anyway? Um, <laughs> which is, he opened the show with that, and it was downright funny. It was offensive, and it had a political leaning to it. That that was all George Carlin. But that's the same guy who, in an earlier concert, said. Two guys in an elevator, one guy farts, everyone knows who did it. You know, he understood as long as he kept us laughing, we'll listen to the message. But we have to laugh. And, you know, when, when I see guys like, you know, Bill Maher and some of the other political comedians who are so so strongly holding on to their agenda uh, of being correct, that they, they forget they're supposed to be funny, I, I sometimes just want to go, hey, guys, you're kind of doing it wrong. You know, watch, watch Colin. That's how you do it. That's how you make me laugh at a, a political viewpoint that I may not necessarily agree with. Go watch was, that. Was there any distinctive style or the, any distinctive um, mannerisms that Carlin had during his act that you feel were basically adapted by several uh, comedians going after? Was there, was there anything that he did that was very unique that really changed the, uh, the whole game of comedy? 
Well, you know, the rhythmic nature, how he how he paced on stage. You got to remember, if you look at comics from the 50s and 60s, they didn't pace before Carlin. They didn't pace before, you know, prior. Those guys opened it up to, okay, we're playing bigger venues. Let's use the whole stage, um, which now you look at guys like Chris Rock, you look at guys like Louis C.K., and you see the way they move on stage, not even content. I'm talking about the, the visual movement on stage. That's the direct descendant of what, what Carlin opened up to us. And in his case, he did it out of necessity because one of his earliest tours was a whole bunch of theaters in the round. And as any comic who's ever performed in the theater in the round will tell you, you got to move. You can't stay in one spot, you know, because it's just too off-putting with the spinning of the stage. So he learned it there, and then he took it to other places, and other comics incorporated it. And then you look at some of the rhythmic word plays that he does. You look at his, you know, and, and he wasn't the first one to do this, but he was probably the first popular person to do this, you know, raising the bar of intelligence, you know. And all of that just came down to, all right, this person is changing the game. No, as far as he goes, he was doing a lot of provocative. Sorry, let me do it. I'm going to count it again. I missed out the question. Three, two, one. Jim, do you feel that Carlin's work would be embraced by the youth of America today as it was 30 years ago? Do you feel that the youth of America or the millennial generation is would be just as receptive or more receptive to his work today? Or do you feel that they would find him to be a little bit too over the top and maybe politically insensitive to the social norms of today? I'm sure a lot of people would be offended by the language. And, and that's just, we live in a culture today where we don't dare to offend, which Carlin didn't care if he offended. Um, but I think if anybody actually listened to what he was saying, and instead of just judging the words that he used to say it, that his message would be very open and very responsive to because it's very timeless. Got it. And uh, the last question I have for you, Mr. Andrinos, is this, what do you feel when it comes down to will be Carlin's most lasting impact, the, the greatest thing that people will take away from his lasting impact on the world of comedy? Wow. Um, I, I think publicly it's going to be the fact that he made it okay to have such solid opinions, even when those opinions weren't the norm. And that's, that's something that I think will last forever. He literally turned stand-up into one of the last bastions of free speech. But I can tell you, as a performer um, who got to meet him a few times, and uh, I, I was um, 20 years old, at the bar Catch Rising Star, and I had a bit that everyone loved but never got laughs on it. And he was in the room one night, and he saw me do the bit, and he grabbed me by the shirt and helped me rewrite the bit, um, which tells you that his lasting impact on the industry is going to be no matter how popular you are, because we're going back to 1984 for that when he was at the height of his popularity. No matter how popular you are, you can always reach back and help a younger comic, which is something that he did to, with so many people, you know, and, and that I think will be his, that'll be his legacy within the industry. Oh, that's, Mr. Jim Mandrinos, thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Mr. Mandrinos and to see him perform, please go to his website, 
at World's Best Comedian. God damn it, I screwed that up. World's Greatest Comedian. World's Best Comic. World's Best Comic. Okay, let me do it again. Three, two, one. Mr. Jim Andrinos, thank you so much for being with us today. That was really great. You got some really great stories of Mr. Carlin. To learn more about Mr. Mandrinos and to see Mr. Mandrinos perform, please go to his website at worldsbestcomic.com. Thank you so much, Mr. Mandrinos. Thank you. Good luck, Ryan. Joining us now is Mr. Jim Serpico, president of Motion Pictures and Television at Apostle. He's also the writer and director of the critically acclaimed hit series on FX, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Mr. Serpico, welcome to the program. And what are your initial thoughts about George Carlin's impact on the entertainment industry on an American culture from your perspective? Well, thanks for having me. Um, George Carlin is uh, far and away one of the best comics that ever existed. Um, I think anyone who's involved in stand-up comedy, whether they're professional or a fan, has uh, been impacted by George's material and, and his performances. As far as his ability to get people to question and to think, do you see some similarities between some of the projects that you have worked on and the style of Mr. Carlin throughout the, his career? Yeah, his material is grounded in truth and his beliefs. And, you know, for us, we, we do character-driven material with, you know, real, very specific point of views that we share. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things... And, and, you know, that were uh, routines that George Carlin created um, that we share, you know. Um, it was amazing. At the beginning of my career, I was um, a tour manager for Dennis Leary, and it was probably 1995. We were traveling several cities around the country, and we, Dennis and I, were in Las Vegas, and we happened to be staying at Bally's Hotel where George Carlin was performing. Um, and it was like a dream of both of ours to be able to meet him. So Dennis asked that I, I give a call and see if we could get tickets. So I called the general number, you know, of the, uh, the Bally showroom and left a message saying that Dennis Leary wanted to meet George Carlin and, uh, get a couple of tickets. And about 15 minutes later, George Carlin called the hotel, called my hotel room. And basically said, the heck with Dennis Leary. I want to meet this guy named Serpico. Why don't you come meet me, you know, right before the show? Yeah. So I brought Dennis back and was able to introduce Dennis to George Carlin. It was pretty cool. That's cool. What did you notice about him when you met him personally? Is there anything you noticed? Was he a really nice guy? Was he very easy to get along with? He was a really nice guy. He had this tiny puppy, a white dog in his hands, which was... uh, pretty funny to us, you know, he's got this gruff exterior and all this, and he had this little tiny dog with a bow, it was pretty funny, but he was very gracious and very, very nice to us, it was unbelievable. And you think about Carlin, you think, are there any of Carlin's lessons or or beliefs that you've actually incorporated into some of the shows that you've worked on over the years, and have there ever been any characters in any of the shows that you've produced that have been a homage or tribute to George Carlin? No, I would not. Um, nothing direct um, that we've, we've taken right out of his material. But again, it's like there's so many common themes, things he talks about with, uh, you know, child worship and, and and kids. You know, everyone wins a trophy and everyone's a winner. I mean, it's just 
stuff that I know that Dennis and I relate to in our real lives and both of us having kids and, and, and bringing up children. Um, George Carlin was talking about this kind of stuff many, many years ago, and, and today it's even exaggerated even more. All right, well, Mr. Serpico, really appreciate your time. You can actually learn more about Jim's company by going to his website at ApostleNYC.com, and you can check out Mr. Serpico's great show, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. It can be seen on the FX Network. It'll be coming back. Is it coming back this coming summer? Yeah, yeah. It'll be on uh, June 30th. Thank you so much for being with us, Mr. Serpico. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye. When it comes to believing in God, I really tried. I really really tried. I tried to believe that there is a God who created each of us in his own image and likeness, loves us very much, and keeps a close eye on things. I really tried to believe that, but I got to tell you, the longer you live, the more you look around, the more you realize something is fucked up. <laughs> something is wrong here. War, disease, death, destruction, hunger, filth, poverty, torture, crime, corruption, and the ice capades. <laughs> Something is definitely wrong. This is not good work. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Results like these do not belong on the resume of a supreme being. This is the kind of shit you'd expect from an office temp with a bad attitude. And just between you and me, in between you and me, in any decently run universe, this guy would have been out on his all-powerful ass a long time ago. And by the way, I say this guy because I firmly believe, looking at these results, that if there is a God, it has to be a man. No woman could or would ever fuck things up like this. So, so. Joining us now is Mr. Chris Mazzilli, owner of Gotham Comedy Club in New York, probably the best comedy club in the country. You can learn more about Gotham Comedy Club by going to the website at gothamcomedyclub.com. Mr. Mazzilli, what are your thoughts, perspectives about Mr. George Carlin after seeing thousands of comedians perform in the course of your lifetime? Well, how you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. You know, he was a great guy. He was a really gentle soul. I mean, a brilliant comedian, um, but just a very sweet person. And I don't think a lot of people realize that because if you saw a stand-up, you know, the way he was in real life, maybe he wasn't the way he was on was on stage. Um, yeah, he's the type of guy that he would call me and say, can I come down to the club tonight? When he could just walk in any time he wanted, we would have been happy to put him on. Uh, wow, so he was pretty humble. And what kind of reactions did people get from him? And how was he Was he generally a nice person to be around? He was a sweetheart. And he, the, the thing that I was most impressed with is he would actually mentor and help a lot of young comedians. You know, he would sit down and give them advice. Um, you know, I have a lot of fond memories of him doing that. Uh, and one of the best memories is there was one night at the club, and this has got to be probably 15 years ago because it was the old location on 22nd Street. Robert Klein was doing a run at the club, and Seinfeld came in that night, and Carlin was there. Um, and after they all went on stage, um, the three of them went out to the bar, and literally the whole room emptied out, and everybody kind of gathered around them, and they were talking shop. So here you had... You know, George, Jerry, and Robert Klein, you know, talking comedy. And uh, there was a woman in the corner, and she was like, she thought the hyperventilate. She's like, you know, I'm from Ohio. Ohio, things like this don't happen in Ohio. So we literally <laughs> had to give her a chair and you know, some some water. Um, but they, you know, they talked shop for about 45, you know, minutes to an hour or so. Uh, he, you know, he, was just a, he was a good guy. He was a really nice guy. 
Well, now, as far as the comedians that you, you rubbed off on, are there any major legendary comedians of today that you can see were directly impacted by Carlin's work? You know what? I mean, look, I think when you have a guy like that of that magnitude, I think a lot were influenced by him. You know, even as far as what he talked about and pushing the envelope, you know, he opened the doors for a lot of guys to be blue. You know, cause don't forget, when he started doing that, there weren't a lot of people out there working that way. You know, I mean, many, you know, Lenny Bruce, guys like that, but there weren't very many people working blue or using the words on stage that he was. So in that aspect, I think he was a pioneer. If you were to think of three comedians that carry the Carlin-esque or, or closest to Carlin in terms of their abilities to be innovative and their abilities to be provocative and their abilities to kind of be cutting edge and almost uh, have an impact on the comedy world as Carlin did, who would you say those three comedians could potentially be? You know, I would say probably Mitch Hedberg would be one, you know, because he was very, very unique uh, in the sense that Carlin was. I would say Louis C.K., you know, and maybe Greg Giraldo, and only because he had the smarts that uh, that Carlin did. Well, Mr. Chris Mazzilli, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Mr. Mazzilli, I want to go to the website at GothamComedyClub.com. Great place to go. Every time you go to New York City, you have to go. It's on 28th Street. So, Mr. Mazzilli, thank you so much for being with us Thanks, today. Thanks, pal. Take care. Joining us now is Dr. Frieda Birnbaum, research psychologist and author of the book, What Price Power? You learn more about, about Dr. You learn more about Dr. Birnbaum by going to her website at Dr. D O C T O R Frida dot com. Ms. Birnbaum, what can you tell us about George Carlin, based on a psychological analysis in George Carlin? Well, you know he was brilliant. If you watch him, uh, you'd think he was some kind of redneck uh, and not identify with him at all if you were middle class. Uh, but when you hear what he says and how he sees politics, the language, psychologically speaking, uh, he really is sharp. And, you know, he used to really be interested in listening to Richard Pryor, uh, to Jerry Lewis. So he emulated a lot of that. And he was someone who lived at home with his mother. He had no father in Manhattan. So he had a time to think and to philosophize about life, about how he saw life in a funny way. So I just want to share with your listeners some of his quotes if they don't know him or aren't familiar with him because uh, before this interview I asked several people if they've heard of him and the younger generation has not. Uh, the 20-some-year-olds are clueless to who he is. So uh, it's, it's sad that we do miss that uh, opportunity of connection as time goes on. But some of the things he said, you know, were very, very um, interesting on the play of words that he used to use, uh, which means that he would say, the shortest sentence is I am in the language, and the longest sentence is I do. It takes a certain kind of mindset to twist words around. Another thing is that he was someone who was analytical, uh, he would say that it's scary when doctors call their profession practice. He would sink into the words, into the language. Um, and then he would say, you know, as a co comedian, uh, you should not cross the boundaries. And I cross all the boundaries deliberately. 
So he was somebody who was a rebel, and people liked that because he spoke for them. But he did hit a nerve with the middle-class people on his type of comedy. As a child, the comedy um, came from his own experiences. Uh, and here is something, and I will, I will quote it, that it was 1951 when I was 14 when grass swept the neighborhood. You know, in that time, grass was, you couldn't even say the word. And we hadn't been into grass before, and we were into fight, gang fighting and wine and beer in the park and punching, can I say this SH word, whatever? Sure. The shit out of people and having jackets with your name and your girls were Debs and you had you had turf and all that dumb shit and we would get into fights over girls and then pop came along and gang fighting went away. In one sentence, in shop class, all the guys went from making zip guns to hash pipes. So it gave you an idea of who this person is and the kind of life that he led. But what's interesting about it Instead of staying in this rebellious stage, he took it, and he made a living out of it, and he was very successful, and he was able to step away from that instead of that pulling him into an extremely bad place. Dr. Frieda Birnbaum, thank you so much for your time and thank for your you. analysis. Thank you. You're great. George I always love thank talking you. to you. When it comes to bullshit... Big time, major league bullshit. You have to stand in awe. In awe of the all-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims, religion. No contest. No contest. Religion. Religion easily has the greatest bullshit story ever told. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day and the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do and if you do any of these ten things he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time but he loves you. <laughs> he loves you. Joining us now is the astrophenom, our astrologer, Miss Constance Dallas. You can learn more about Miss Dallas. You can get a reading with Miss Dallas by going to her website at ConstanceDellis.com. Miss Dallas. What is the chart of George Carlin and his daughter, Kelly? Well, um, interesting, interesting, interesting. I mean, charts are always interesting to me. But uh, what I knew about George Carlin before I did this chart was that he was a comedian and a performer, and he also had a very, let's say, soulful approach sometimes to his, um, to his comedy and made jokes about life in general and the big picture. What his chart suggests to me is that he, in some respects, we could say, was channeling material. I'll just put it very 
um, generally like that because I don't think it was necessarily connected to a particular spirit or brotherhood or uh, chart, but his inspiration kind of came from above, uh, which is sometimes common in artists, but mm, more so with him. Ms. Dels, may I pause you for just yeah. one second to bring to your attention that in the course of this show, which was aired, we interviewed Bill Kinison, Sam Kinison's brother. Yeah. And Bill relayed to us that George called him up and said, Sam Kinison is giving me material, and I'm channeling Sam Kinison. Oh, my God. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I remember Kinison. I remember Kinison. Well, it's it's interesting because I don't know James von Prague's chart uh, completely, but you know who he is. He's he's a pretty well-known psychic. But he has the same Uranus position at the very top of the chart which has its upside and its downside. The upside is is that it opens a person to illumination and even wisdom from higher channels. The downside is that it can make the earth personality a little unstable. Um, I don't know if that was the case with George. Maybe not because his um, uh, sun sign is Taurus and the Uranus position is also Taurus and Mercury is Taurus. So there's Earth and he is grounded and he has what's called a grand Earth trine uh, in his chart which uh, usually betokens the person that has, um, let's say, psychic impressions and gets uh, even prophetic visions, but is very much uh, grounded in the the here and now. Now, his moon sign was uh, Gemini. The gift of gab, very funny uh, way of speaking and very um, engaging. And all of that connects also to his rising sign, which is Leo, which is the sign of the uh, performer. So he had a lot of juice and a lot of native optimism, we can say, uh, as to what was going on in the world and what he wanted to make fun of. Um, I'm not sure of his career path, but I, I, I mean, I know he did very well, and it may have been kind of bumpy, 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 and then he kind of achieved um, a certain plateau. Uh, his chart suggests he wasn't too hot with money. He made it, but it kind of was easy come, easy go. And um, in terms of past lives that we sometimes continue, um, consider, I would say that he had pretty uneventful past lives, kind of storing up uh, information or juice for the current life, but was very, very family uh, oriented, the, the idea of family. So I don't know. Now, we, we, we do have his daughter's chart this time. So um, we can, uh, one thing for sure. Anyway, do you have any other questions about George? Yeah, about, uh, particularly about George, is that. Why was this life so significant? What was it about this particular life and the the reason why he was able to make a significant impact? Well, I I think that, uh, as I said, it was like storing up juice over lifetimes. And um, the juice was always from the heart because he was a family-oriented person in previous times, could have been man, could have been a, a, a woman, could have been a mother, but somebody who was very, very nurturing uh, of the hearth. And uh, this time he had a lot to say. 
and found a very humorous um, and entertaining way to say it. So he he may not have been as um, considerate in terms of family dynamics this time around, but he kind of did his time in, in past lives. Now, if you look at his chart, does he have elements in his chart of somebody who is put on this earth for that particular time to kind of throw things out of balance or to throw a wrench in consciousness to, to get people to start changing their perspectives. Was that was Yeah, I would um, say when I say about the channeling because he he himself didn't know all the time where his his insights came from. And with that Gemini moon, um it pops out of your mouth before you've even thought about it. So he may have been very surprised. And I mean if I were speaking to him I'd say, George, do you like um uh, work on a lot of your material, improving it to yourself or into a, a tape recorder or into a, you know, a, 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 a some way of, of recording it, so that because it was the improvisatory spirit that really connected him on all levels and uh, was so fresh and, and humorous and unexpected. So um, yes, I would say he he made his contribution in shaking things up definitely. Definitely. And the question I look and I love to ask you, mm. most of the guests, is where do you see his next life? Um, I think he might come back as a performer again. Uh, I think he's got some more juice to, uh, or some more um, energy to contribute in that in that direction, and um, that the the comic muse, so to speak, will will stick with him. But he'll be a little bit better with money and material things next time around. Excellent. Now, what about his daughter, Kelly? What do you see in now, her chart? She uh, has a very deep tie with her father called a sun-moon conjunction. She is a Gemini, and uh, that connects to her father's moon sign. So that betokens that they have had lifetimes together in different roles, but in a family close relationship. So it could have been parent-child, it could have been husband-wife, it could have been brother-sister. All of these things kind of get jumbled up um, as uh, the soul evolves. And um, whereas uh, her father was very rooted in the earth signs, she is a more flexible and we could even say um, spacey kind of um, a personality in terms of being unsure about how things um, connect in her life. She's very talented. Um, her moon sign is Pisces and it is in a kind of tough um, relationship with her son, uh, sun sign, Gemini. So um, hard to make a decision, very active mind, changing directions, like she'll be saying, oh, we're going to do this and then go in another direction. Wait a second, I have to sneeze. No, I don't. Uh, and <coughs> yes, I do. Uh, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Mohammed bless you. Thank you. And um, uh, the Pisces moon gives her acute sensitivity to the environment that is around her. And although she admires uh, performing and performances, she is more a, a behind-the-scenes kind of person. Um, and I think that she has um, a lot 
she also has a lot of juice, a lot of energy in her chart, but it's not as easily um, categorized as her as her father. But she was very attached to him, and um, learned learned a lot. And perhaps in her own uh, family life, marriage wise, uh, maybe it helped her out. Maybe it didn't. She she has a tough chart for um, maintaining long term um, partnerships uh, like like marriage. Um, definitely. What is she? Yeah. What if she is going to utilize her talents mm. and utilize what is in her chart in order to achieve the maximum amount of success in career and just feeling fulfilled overall? How should she apply that? To what direction should she apply her talents and skills in um, order to let's say access some of that creative juice, as you say? Well. I think you told me that she was writing. I, I think she's also a very visual um, person. So anything in in the plastic arts, uh, in painting, and also film. Yes, yes, yes. She can she can do she can do film, but there's nothing. There's not such an extreme concentration of this is what you should do. And her feeling about what she does is more important than the quote-unquote product of it. So if she feels engaged and in the flow, so to speak, then that will be very rewarding and successful for her. At the moment, Saturn is going through her 10th house of career. And that's rarely a happy time (laughs) uh, in terms of career success. It means a lot of work. I shouldn't say it's unhappy, but it doesn't necessarily give us the the, the applause or the um, um, success that we might want. So rather than uh, chasing after more, 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 if she can kind of flow with whatever she's doing, that will be a reward uh, in, uh, in itself. And um, I think... Uh, her so Pisces moon, um, a Gemini sun, and Aquarius rising. So it has taken her a while to kind of get in her groove, and um, it's a, a unique kind of um, talent. It's not a butcher baker, candlestick maker. She's not a comedian. She's not completely a writer. She's not completely a painter, film person. She's not completely a business person, although she has those those um, uh, qualities. And that very flexibility sometimes, I think, um, makes her feel like a, a leaf in the wind a bit. Right. And when you look at George Carlin and uh. the success that he had, what area of George's chart did Kelly, do you feel, impacted the most or enhanced the most? Oh, he loved her. <laughs> I mean, he she was his 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 baby doll, and and um, I think that um, the the. I mean, you could tell from that just on the just on the chart right uh, alone. Absolutely, is it? absolutely. Um, and I don't know. It, it seems like she may have brothers and sisters. I don't know if uh, George was their father, but their tie was regardless. I mean, even if he had been a chimney sweeper, they would have had a very, very uh, close um, family tie. Miss Constance Stellas, the astrophenom. Thank you so much for your great analysis on Mr. George Carlin and Miss Kelly Carlin. My to learn pleasure. more about. Yeah, to learn more about Ms. Constance Dallas and to get a reading with Ms. Constance Dallas, 
Please go to our website at ConstanceDallas.com. Thank you so much for selling. You're welcome. You're welcome. Where would we be without our safe, familiar American bullshit? Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal. Justice is blind. The press is free. Business is honest. The good guys win. Your vote counts. The police are on your side. God is watching you. Your standard of living will always improve. (laughs) And everything is going to be just fine. The official national bullshit story. I call it the American okey-doke. Everyone, every one of those items is provably untrue at one level or another, but we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. That's what they do with that kind of thing. Pounded into the heads of kids because they know the children are much too young to be able to muster an intellectual defense against a sophisticated idea like that. And they know that up to a certain age, children believe everything their parents tell them. And as a result, they never learn to question things. Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody questions anything. Everybody's too fat and happy. Everybody's got a cell phone that'll make pancakes and rub their balls now. Way too fucking prosperous for our own good. Way too fucking prosperous. Americans have been bought off and silenced by toys and gizmos. And no one learns to question things. You remember? Joining us now is the queen of the universe. Globally respected psychic medium, Miss Carrie O'Connor. You can learn more about Miss O'Connor or get a reading with Miss O'Connor by going to her website at carrieoconnor.com. Miss O'Connor, what are some of your insights on the life of Mr. George Carlin? George Carlin is an amazing man. Ryan, when, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever you ask me the question, what the first thing I do is I look in their energy field, and with him in particular, I saw a lot of times I'll see the sun behind somebody, so that shows me their passion, their excitement, how they were guided by life, even their, their spotlight in the stage, you know, that kind of thing. What was behind him was this mountain energy. And what that showed me is that he backed himself so much into what he was, his message that he was here. He was here to break down the mountains, right? And he also knew how to, you know that saying, making mountains out of mohills? He um, loved to um, make mountains out of mohills to break up the system, to get people out of their, the way they think, their, their typical, very narrow thinking. And he's got the... Um, the shamans would say he got the, the support from the mountains, which really kind of back you up. And when you have that mountain support, that's um, a very significant symbol, to be honest. I'm sure he had many lifetimes as a shaman and even Druism, um, and that he was a, um, a man that wasn't afraid to take the system on. And even when his case came around and going all the way to the superior court, and he changed history where they voted against him, where um, they can regulate what they have to say, freedom of speech. So he had, came in with an amazing energy. His, <clears throat> he left a thumbprint, his like energy imprint, that's going to last forever. It's like a domino effect, absolutely affect other um, future generations. And, so, and some of these kids we have not even seen yet, or they're just being born, and they're going to refer to George Car- Carlin interfering, um, influencing their life as far as their humor. Now you said that you had this unique shaman type energy. Were there mm-hmm. any other individuals who you've seen that carry the similar energy that George Carlin has or have been utilizing that? And by the way, why does that energy pick and choose a certain person and how does one actually tap into that? Well, you could say the the shamans say the mountain chooses you or the um the forest chooses you, but especially the mountain. The mountain and shamanisms have also been called the Elohims, which is another word for 
direct line to the godheads or huge communicator or big communication to the uh, beyond the third dimension and most people are stuck in that very much linear thinking right so for him to come in with these four huge mountains behind him I first of all know that he's a very very old soul and again he came in here for a purpose and he even said like the st the stage so um um I'm just looking at one of his quotes like life was here to um life's purpose here for the show right and that was his I, I i've never heard anybody say my life purpose is that i'm here for the show in so a way that says a lot to me that he knew life was a show life was a game and that we can play it and we could play it as a the loser or we could play it as the player and really get involved in it and shake it up and um and that's what we're here to do we're we're, we're here to shake up um boundaries lines the rules and george definitely came in here to bust the rules i think it's very interesting that his father was a cop and that um here he came from a lineage irish lineage immigrants where his father came from the um the, you know, the very law and order and that they separated with alcoholism. So obviously there was addiction in his family and even him, his own addiction issues. So you see that a lot with people who have this very, very high energy, Ryan. It's like that they are fed by that passion, fed by like that mountain energy and to make big steps out into the world. And sometimes they can get into addiction issues when they, um, when people aren't, um, like getting what they're saying or he doesn't feel their support or that kind of thing. It issues of the heart. And I also read that he had several heart attacks and, um, and heart failure. He died of it. And, uh, he had to get the, the affibulations, um, the zappings to get his heart in alignment because it's because of affibulations or his, uh, his heart being, um, again, a fit and, uh, out of alignment. And that showed me the man, the part, the human part of, uh, um, George, you could say, that felt the heartache of humanity of coming in and seeing the world through different eyes, much bigger eyes, and feeling that so many people block themselves in that. That could be frustrating. That's when he wasn't afraid to go um, to the extremes in what he says and what he did. Right. And, Carrie, my understanding is that George Carlin was an atheist. He didn't yeah. um, believe in once in universal God and he had a very hard time grasping it and I believe that it was a lot to do with the fact that he couldn't see God or he couldn't yeah. see these energies. And I think a lot of people, they don't, most people, I guess, don't have the capability of perceiving uh, energies, don't have the capability of perceiving angels, beings right. for that uh, reason. Mr. Carlin apparently was an atheist. He had a very hard time understanding or grasping or seeing or believing yeah. God because he, mm. he couldn't see it, touch it. Mm -hmm. Or feel it. I think most people can't. Most mm -hmm. people don't have that capability. Mm -hmm. Yet a lot of people believe it's there. So I'm curious to know, in the end, how does one find a connection with the divine and know that the divine is there without being able to perceive it through your conventional um, five or six, five senses? Okay. And also the, the second part to that question is this, is that do you feel that what... Um, did George Carlin ultimately found a, a belief in pattern in God upon its passing? Did he, what did he ultimately see when he died? Yeah, that's a good question. All right. Ryan, the first thing is that we all, the human part of us, we are see, believe in society. If we don't see it, we don't feel it, we don't touch it, it doesn't exist, right? But the God is more of a feeling. And when we really stop looking outside of ourselves for that um the God that's going to split the, the seas and, you know, that kind of stuff and really start doing an inward journey 
there's a void over our heart that blocks us from our connection to source God creator, right? Literally looks like a, um, where we got unplugged or you could say symbolically kicked out of the garden. So we don't have that direct connection, but that's the illusion. And so God is more of a feeling. You could look at God when you hold a baby, you look in the eyes of a baby and you just feel this omnipresence, beautiful, unconditional love. You're looking in the eyes of God. You know, it's, we got to go beyond God as this guy that sits in the sky that with this great big beard and all that. God is, God's a feeling. When I look at the God source creator energy, it's an energy pattern. There's no male or feminine energy to it. It's like an, uh, it's, it's a feeling. It's omnipresent. It goes into your heart energy. It opens you up. There's no words to fill in in it to describe it, but words that would um, kind of describe it would be again bliss, omnipresence, feeling universal, feeling like a like you're spreading across the universe and feeling so connected and all at one in this oneness energy, and it just opens you up, and so you're not going to get it from the outside. You're not going to see it. With George, I thought it was very cool that he said. Um, in one of his um, uh, skits, he was talking about, I believe in the sun. The sun is God. That's a very shamanic energy. He, the overlays of his shamanistic time comes in in a lot of his work, right? And mm -hmm. the sun is, um, a lot of shamanic people say the sun is symbolically representing the male aspect of God. And the, the, and the feminine is the moon or the earth, right? And so when George crossed over... There was a part of him, he didn't even do what I call the deer in the headlights. A lot of atheists do the deer in the headlights where they're like, holy shit, now I'm still alive, but I feel more alive than ever before. He um, got out of the physical body, felt so expanded. It's like he went running toward the light. He bypassed family members. He bypassed uh, um, other things that people could get involved with, you know. He just went straight so he did, he, to the he didn't even see family. No, he, he went like, right back. That? He saw them, but he just imagined running through, knowing that he would come around and see them at one time. He wanted to go right to the top. Again, that doesn't surprise me. That's his energy. He wanted to go to the right to the source. He had the balls to say, "Hey, I want to go right to Jesus Christ Himself. I want to see what the hell this is all about." Right? And that, and when we do that, it's like to me, it looks like we fly in this tube and we go right into the higher celestial realms. And and he he got in there, and that's when I see. It's like he went in between these, um, let's just say, again, these mountains represent this a very high-frequency energy. Then it was humbling. Then he went drop down to his knees. Then he got the feeling. Imagine having your heart getting open by this feeling that cracks you open. It's like cement that we've been all carrying around for eons, and we're so cemented. And every year and every lifetime, it gets more cemented and more cemented and more thicker and more thicker. And then when he went over there, when he first lost the physical body, that was his first step of getting rid of, the, rid of that cement. Then the more he fell into that light energy and the more he opened his heart, then all of a sudden that cement turned to sand and he does show me. <clears throat> Again, like when I see somebody that drops down to their knees in a very humbling way and then having tears coming out outside of their eyes, meaning um, like an ancient tears and a feeling of reunion and a connection and, um, and really feeling this is the void. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. That's why I could have gotten into alcohol and Vicodin and that kind of thing. And so um, he ha he got the feeling all right. So his, Wait, it's changed. But I want to know that when he was dropping to his knees, when he was when he had this humble experience, was he doing this to pay homage uh, to a higher source or a higher being that was outside of himself or a separate entity, 
or was he dropping to his knees? I guess upon the realization of his uh, part in the, within the divine itself, that he was a part of this and he was experiencing himself or experiencing the love that he had generated. Both, both. That he, it was not like this humble, humble pie. I'm dropped on my knees because I didn't believe in you. It's not about that. It's about imagining this energy that doesn't give a crap if we loved it or not, paid homage to it or not. And then all of a sudden we have this reconnection and it's, 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 it's I, I don't, there's no words to it, Ryan. I'm like stumbling on my words because the connection that he had or the reconnection that he had, the d symbolic dropping to the knees, again, it's not paying homage. Sometimes I see people drop to the knees where they look like they're um, dragging their bodies in sand, which shows me that they are still in this dimension where they believe life has to do with suffering and sacrifice and or that's how they carried life and they missed a lot in life and so I'll see that he shows me a very different symbol of feeling for the first time more alive than he ever ever has felt in his life it's the aliveness and through his death he felt alive and then also getting a glimpse of the imprint that he made on the earth like that's what I call the domino effect that's going to continue to work with people to plant seeds because of the work that he did it broke it cracked people's minds up it helped them break through the cement right and any anything and anybody that does that um that uh that makes just let's say we we see the effect that we have on humanity on the world on our evolutionary process in general and that is, again, a feeling that can be very humbling or, again, it puts you down on your knees, you know? And as far as George Collins goes, you said that in some of his previous lifetimes he was a shaman? Yeah, yeah. Is there, is there anything that, you, uh, that comes to mind about what his most recent lifetime is was? And also, where do you see his next lifetime being? I see him looking at the clock and going into <laughs> to uh, speeding up a clock where everything looks like it's star time, meaning that he doesn't mean to, he doesn't plan on coming back here for a while until the earth has really changed where duality is not existing anymore because he recognizes how hard duality is to live separated from each other and feeling the void and just feeling like life is a war zone. So he will, he'll wait around for a while, right? But beyond there, we don't know time. You know what I mean? Time doesn't mean anything to us. In the past life that I see that's the most significant for him, I see uh, it looks like I'm going to Colorado, the four corners there with um, where uh, Arizona, Colorado, the, they all meet. And um, up in, actually, I just saw the Durango um, where Stewart used to have a lot of his um, things, Colorado, where the cliff people hang. And you could still see the cliffs um, markings and they thought that they were um, like hundreds of years old. Then they re just discovered that they're thousands of years old. He's connected to that. And that, again, is around a lot of mountains, right? Brings me back to this mountain energy. And that I hear drum and drumming. And he was definitely connected to being the drummer. And he also helps the fire keeper. So the fire keeper in the shamanic circle, it's a very sacred job because they have to keep, stay awake and keep that fire burning. And that, that's a very sacred job. You get picked to choose to do that. And that fire represents their connection to the God source, greater energy. So part of George, it's like he rubs his eyes open. is like getting the sand out of his eyes, like life experience of where he, I've seen people that said that they are an atheist and they really are so adamant what an atheist they are and there is no God, blah, blah, blah. 
And then underneath it all, there's a layer of the atheist, but underneath it all, there's a uh, a lot more of, um, I don't want to say a believer, but they're a lot more spiritual than they could have ever imagined that they are. And our, our, our view of spiritual is um, like what Stuart Weil would call, it's not whitey-tighty where we sit around and, um, and drink tea and don't swear, you know. Um, you could be super spiritual and have a voice of a truck driver and it really comes back to how did you live in your heart? You know, did you love? Did you connect? How many times did you actually um, extend your energy to another individual from that heart space without an agenda and even think of laughter? Laughter is the best medicine. It helps us get out of that cement energy and it helps heal. It literally helps heal cancer. So he had a sacred job as a um as a shaman in the um, in the Durango Mountains. Final question I have for you, Ms. O'Connor, is we have the pleasure of interviewing his, Mr. Carlin's daughter, Kelly, and we're kind of wondering to know if George Carlin has a, a ongoing connection with Kelly, if he communicates with her, and what her role was in his, you know, rise and if, how she impacted him, how she influenced him. You know, it's interesting. When I read Kelly's energy, her birthday is June 15th, the same as my daughter. So she was a Gemini, Gemini the twin, and she went toe-to-toe to him. And the Gemini's message is they're the communicators, right? And so, and here he had that Taurian energy, and so he was the bull. So I saw that they had this interesting partnership where she comes in to communicate, to communicate a message herself in her own way, right? And she would go toe-to-toe to her father, meaning I, ha- I can't go his way. Yes, he could clear the path for me because of his name, but she's got to do it her own way, in her own way that she viewed life with George Carlin and she's got it through her own perception and communicate it that way. And that's the gift that he encourages her to do that. Um, and he also recognizes that the tough, you know, there wasn't all singing Kumbaya. There was a lot of ups and downs there, you know, (laughs) um, that he knows that through her, um, through his death, she is going to come full circle. And I know she's, um, was writing uh, it's right, a book. She, yeah, she wrote a great yep. book about it. Yep, and that book, um, if she hasn't already written this for the, another one, I see a couple of this to follow, and um, I know that I heard something about a one-woman show, and I see her giving a different view again of um, being around George's energy, which is huge, right, and living, because she could have chose to have, here he's the mountain, and she could have been, um, taken in by the mountain where she wasn't seen. It's like being imagine a clip, being eclipsed by the energy. But the way she shows me that she was able to at times go on top of that mountain. So she he allowed her to see a different view on life, right? And he gave her the the permission or encouraged her to look outside of the box. And he's by the way he lived and the way his his um he lived his life literally and it's his comedy and all that. So they taught each other a lot. They were it was a very teaching relationship there miss carrie o'connor thank you so much for your thorough and very interesting analysis of mr george carlin and for adding miss kelly carlin in that to learn more about miss carrie o'connor and to get a reading with miss carrie o'connor please go to her website at carrieoconnor.com thank you so much miss o'connor thank you ryan it's always a pleasure love you too on election day i stay home i don't vote fuck them Fuck them. I don't vote. Two reasons. Two reasons I don't vote. First of all, it's meaningless. 
This country was bought and sold and paid for a long time ago. The shit they shuffle around every four years <laughs> doesn't mean a fucking thing. And secondly, I don't vote because I believe if you vote, you have no right to complain. People like to twist that around, I know. They say, they say, well, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. But where's the logic in that? If you vote and you elect dishonest, incompetent people and they get into office and screw everything up, well, you are responsible for what they have done. You caused the problem. You voted them in. You have no right to complain. I, on the other hand, who did not vote, who did not vote, who, in fact, did not even leave the house on election day, I'm in no way responsible for what these people have done and have every right to complain as loud as I want about the mess you created that I had nothing to do with. So I know that a little later on this year you're going to have another one of those really swell presidential elections that you like so much. You'll enjoy yourselves. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure as soon as the election is over, your country will improve immediately. As for me, I'll be home on that day doing essentially the same thing as you. The only difference is when I get finished masturbating, I'm going to have a little something to show for it, folks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, everyone, that concludes our forensic soul analysis on George Carlin. Special thanks to our amazing guests. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Constance Ellis, Lisa McGarity, and our associate producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. And till the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening.